Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So, Delta Company of 6 RAR have just taken over from Bravo Company near a rubber plantation in Vietnam. In the wee small hours of the previous day, the first Australian task force base at Nui Dat had been mortared and now it was Delta Company's job to track down those enemy troops who would attack the base. Unbeknownst to the members of Delta, just to the east of the Long Tan rubber plantation were 1,400 troops of the 275th Regiment of the North Vietnamese Army, 350 local Viet Cong of the D445 Battalion, and another NVA Regiment, the 274th. All up, within 15 to 20 kilometres of the 108 Australians were at least 3,250 enemy troops. Delta Company was about to walk into a maelstrom. Welcome to the Australian Military History Podcast, a podcast dedicated to Australian servicemen and women covering events, units and personalities from the Boer War through to the modern day. G'day everyone, welcome back to the second part of this two-part series on the Battle of Long Tan. So when asked later what their intentions were, Nguyen Na Hung, commander of the 274th Regiment, stated simply, Our intentions were to decimate you knock you out. In the rainy days of 1966, the command of the 5th Division coordinated with the headquarters of the Barria to annihilate the Australians in the Barria battlefield. End quote. The plan to achieve this result was quite simple. Hung stated that the first part was to lure Australian forces out into the open and then destroy that force. Then they would fall upon the weakened task force base at Nui Dat and destroy everyone and everything therein. They'd already put the first part of that plan into action. The mortar attack had indeed drawn out an Australian force. Now all they had to do was decimate that force and they could move on to the second part of the plan. At about 3pm, Delta Company moved into the rubber plantation in Arrowhead formation. Kendall's 10 platoon formed the peak of the Arrow with Sabin's 12 platoon on the left and Sharp's 11 platoon on the right. Major Harry Smith and company headquarters were in the middle of the Arrow. Upon reaching a tracked junction, Smith radioed Townsend to advise that all was quiet and that his plan was to advance into the jungle that night. He chose a track on a coin toss and ordered a two-up advance. 11 platoon moved up level with 10, while 12 fell back to cover headquarters. At about 3.40pm, 11 platoon's forward scouts surprised 6 to 8 enemy troops. Sergeant Buick opened fire, hitting one and the others fled. And here we have the first of the radio transmissions. I think this would be a good time to explain a bit of radio procedure for those who haven't had the privilege of carrying one of those heavy suckers through the bush. First up, each radio has a call sign. When making a transmission, the correct procedure is to state which call sign you are after and then which call sign you are. In the following recording, you'll hear 4, this is 4-2. Major Smith's radio call sign is 4, Sharp's call sign is 4-2. So what you have is Sharp's radio operator calling Smith's radio operator. He then says, contact, wait out. That means they've seen the enemy and will report when they are able to do so. The next bit you need to know is that various elements will have a call sign of their own. 
You'll hear Sharp say, fetch Sunray. Sunray is the call sign of the commander of that element. So Smith is the Sunray of Delta, Sharp is Sunray 11 Platoon, and so forth. And finally, Sharp gives Smith a sit rep. You can probably guess that this is radio speak for a situation report. Also, keep in mind that radio communication is only 20 to 30 years old at this stage. Static, background noise, and just the low fidelity of the equipment does make it a bit difficult to hear exactly what's being said. In those instances, I'll play the recording and then tell you what was said. So let's listen in. So that is pretty much the beginning of the Battle of Long Tan. And there's a couple of significant things to take away from this brief encounter. First, the Vietnamese troops had been surprised, walking down the track and not expecting Australian troops to be there. It appears that the Vietnamese weren't exactly ready to spring their trap just yet. They would have to make rapid adjustments to the plan and react to the new situation, which is never the most effective way of setting up an ambush. Ideally, you want all of your elements in place and ready to rock long before your targets get there. Secondly, Sharp has the presence of mind to advise that the enemy was wearing green uniforms. Seems a pretty minor detail, but the VC wore black uniforms. The presence of green uniforms confirmed to Jackson's headquarters, who were listening in back at Nui Dat, that the NVA had indeed arrived. Remember that at this stage, Smith hadn't been told about that NVA radio, which had been tracked heading towards Nui Dat. He may not have made the connection, but Jackson did. It was probably this realisation which would lead him to refuse reinforcements to Delta Company, but we'll get to that. With Smith's orders to chase them ringing in his ears, Sharp led 11 platoon into the rubber, trying to keep up with the fleeing Vietnamese. Before long, they were a good 300 metres in front of the rest of the company. At 3.55, they came upon a small hut in the clearing. They had to stop their headlong pursuit in order to search the hut. They found nothing, and so they continued on, much slower now, sensing that caution was now needed. Sharp didn't realise it, but his platoon was heading straight at the 275th Regiment's headquarters. From the Vietnamese perspective, they actually thought there was a much larger body of troops in the plantation than was actually there. Previous enemies, the French and Americans, tended to concentrate troops, but the Australians were spread across a significant patch of real estate, both in width and depth. The Frogs and the Yanks would have hundreds of troops packed into a similar space. But, unlike those erstwhile enemies, the Australians had extensive experience in jungle fighting, having fought the Japanese in World War II and over the previous 10 years in the Malayan jungle. Small units were the go in these conditions. Not that this confusion lasted too long, or affected the Vietnamese plans. Out on its own, 11 platoon would bear the brunt of the opening fusillade. So what you just heard was Sharp telling Smith that an 11 platoon is in contact. You can hear the firing in the background. Keep in mind, that's no sound effect or Hollywood representation. That's the real thing. He reports that he has counted three machine guns and says the estimated enemy strength is his call sign size. So basically platoon size, and that's based on the standard makeup of a platoon being three sections, each with its own machine gun. He then says, fetch Sheldrake. Sheldrake is the call sign for artillery. So he's obviously calling for artillery support. 
The opening fuselage killed four Australians instantly and was followed by an absolute storm of rocket-propelled grenades, machine gun fire and rifle fire. Private Peter Ainsley later said that, quote, You couldn't put your hand up without getting your fingers shot off. Eleven platoon went to ground and set about returning fire. Sergeant Buick's instinct was to get stuck in so that the enemy wouldn't bug out. He wanted them pinned there so the rest of the company could come up and make a real fight of it. But he later admitted that the platoon was surprised by the savagery of the firing and really they were doing what any normal person would do in that situation, finding somewhere relatively safe to at least give them a chance of fighting back without getting killed. The opening barrage lasted about 15 minutes. While 11 platoon were getting themselves sorted, Smith called in the artillery. In a nutshell, that was Maury Stanley calling in the artillery fire. First, he gives coordinates and waits for the faller shot. Sharp then reports back to drop them in a bit closer. He then sets about walking the shells in closer and closer to 11 platoon's perimeter, one shot at a time, just in case he's got the coordinates wrong. One shell dropping short is better than an entire salvo. Smith then reports into Townsend. Notice that not only does he report that 11 platoon is in contact with a platoon sized force, but he also confirms that his own position is being mortared. He then states that there is a large force in the area and requests reinforcement and is informed that there are none. He is going to have to fight this out with just his own company. That would have been a bit of a kick in the guts. So with nothing coming his way, Smith sets about getting the rest of his company into the fight. Smith ordered Kendall to take 10 platoon forward to help out 11 platoon by coming in from the north. He then advised Sharp that help was on its way and to hold tight. Sharp had no intention of going anywhere. A short time later, Sharp contacted Smith again and the news wasn't good. This is getting big. Sharp just advised Smith that it's bigger than his initial estimation of a platoon size force. It's now the size of Smith's call sign, meaning company size. 11 platoons, 30 odd men, less the casualties already suffered, are being hit by a force at least three to four times their size. 
Smith acknowledged and restated that 10 is on its way. Sharp hunkered back down, waiting for 10 to join him. But then... The intensity of the Vietnamese attack has increased and you can hear it in Sharp's voice. Up to this point, his voice has been calm, efficient and professional. He's shouting to be heard over the noise of the attack and you can pick up an element of, I don't think it's fear, but there's certainly some desperation in his voice. Smith then called Townsend to advise that 11 platoon was facing a company-sized force and that urgent reinforcements were required, preferably via helicopter, to get them there as quickly as possible. Townsend again disappoints him. And then, this. That's 4-2's radio, but that's not Gordon Sharp's voice. That's Sergeant Bob Buick. He tells Delta Headquarters radio operator to fetch Sunray, meaning Major Smith. He then reports, My Sunray is Kilo India Alpha. His Sunray is Gordon Sharp and Kilo India Alpha is the phonetic alphabet for KIA, killed in action. Gordon Sharp is dead. While raising his head to judge the fall of the artillery, he was shot through the throat and died almost instantly. Bob Buick was now in charge of 11 platoon, in probably the worst situation possible. Meanwhile, 10 platoon is trying to execute their move to the north, but they come into contact with a heavy enemy force. Kendall calls for artillery support, which is acknowledged by Maury Stanley, but then 10 platoon radio goes quiet. This is probably the worst thing that could happen at this point. With 11 platoon copping it from three sides, 10 platoon needs to get there to relieve the pressure. But 10 platoon can't move because they're pinned down. A bit of artillery might help, but now the only form of communication with 10 platoon has been lost. Without confirmation of where they are, Stanley can't call in artillery without unacceptable risks of dropping it on 10 platoon. Stanley urgently tries to get all other call signs to see if they can raise 10 platoon. No one can. Things are getting bad, quickly. It became obvious to Major Smith that his only chance of helping 11 platoon at this point is to throw all the artillery of Nui Dat in their direction. So he orders Stanley to call this in. In the following excerpt, Stanley requests fire support regiment, meaning the whole artillery regiment needs to get in on the act. So what do we have in that little exchange? Stanley has called for the regiment to provide fire support to which the artillery regimental commander has stated they can't do as the other batteries are detailed to support call sign 2 
being a 5RAR patrol in another sector of the province. But the interesting thing is, 5RAR aren't being attacked. The only Australian element being shot at is Delta. Harry Smith then gets onto the radio and tells Townsend that they need urgent regimental artillery support and that it has been denied. And, mustering all the support that he can to give to his embattled company commander, Townsend basically tells Smith to pull his head in and leave artillery control to the artillery. I reckon if I was Major Smith, I'd have had a few colourful things to say at that point. And he did apparently. I don't have the recording, but in Paul Ham's book, he stated that Smith said, I want all the guns in support, the whole regiment, give me all the guns you've got. Again, Townsend blocked the request. In Ham's words, Smith had reached the threshold of his patience and demanded the guns. He doesn't say exactly how he made the request, but a few moments later, Stanley told him, we've got the guns of the whole regiment. It was about this time that Mother Nature obviously decided that the scene wasn't horrific enough, and she opened up a monsoonal downpour over the battlefield. Kendall later said that the rain was so heavy that you actually ingested water just by breathing. It did have one advantage for the Australians though. Reduced visibility meant that laying on the ground, they now had an extra level of concealment which their enemy didn't have. Another bit of good news for Smith is that Private Bill, Yank Ackle, who was carrying the company's spare radio, had recognised that Templatoon needed his radio. But they were two to three hundred metres away, somewhere over there, roughly. It was a dawning prospect, but he had to get that radio through, and so off he went. Along the way, he came across and killed two Viet Cong soldiers. His only means of locating Templatoon was to start calling out, Mr Kendall, Mr Kendall. Ackle described his actions thusly. I took off. I had no idea where I was going except to find Templetoon. The enemy rounds were cracking overhead, and the more they cracked, the more I sort of was very keen to find Jeff Kendall. With communication with Templetoon now restored, Kendall could call in fire support, but he had to tell Smith that there was no way he'd be able to reach 11 platoon. Smith then orders him to pull back to headquarters. While making their way back towards HQ, Templetoon came across a group of Viet Cong attempting to work their way in behind 11 Platoon. Templetoon went to ground without the VC noticing their presence. They approached closer and closer, and as Private Kevin Branch thought to himself, Christ, we'll be able to shake hands with them soon. And then, finally, Kendall ordered, Fire. And every member of Templetoon who was still able to fire opened up. At least 20 VC were killed, and Templetoon got at least some payback for the last hour or so. But, more importantly, they saved 11 platoon from having to deal with an attack from their rear. So how was 11 platoon going at this point? Not good. With Gordon Sharp dead, and the Vietnamese still coming on in waves, Bob Buick and his men were holding on by their fingertips. Private Ron Ellington kept up a rate of fire on his M60 despite being wounded. Unsure of who was still in the fight, Buick got each of his men to call out their names. Private Barry Meller opened his mouth to call out his name, when a bullet entered his mouth and exited out his right cheek. According to Buick, quote, I don't remember him flinching. In fact, I think he kept on talking. By now, out of a platoon of 30 men, 11 platoon had lost 18, dead or wounded. Each desperate charge of the Vietnamese brought them closer and closer, and they were now less than 100 metres away from the beleaguered Australians. But of much greater concern, the Australians were running out of ammunition. 
12 platoon were now ordered to try to make their way towards 11 platoon to try and clear a way for them to pull back. But... By now, it's abundantly clear to Smith that his company is at a very real risk of annihilation. They are obviously facing an enemy of at least battalion strength. They're surrounded. Unless something is done soon, it won't be long until 11 platoon ceases to exist. With 11 gone, it won't take long for the Vietnamese to regroup and come on in force against a depleted 10 platoon and surround 12 platoon and headquarters. Smith gets on the blower to Townsend. Did anyone else just shake their head just now? Smith is telling Townsend that Eleven is continuing to take casualties and that their platoon commander is dead. He requests urgent US air support, specifically Maypalm. Then, back in the comfort and safety of Nui Dat, Townsend casually says he'll have to ask his Sunray, meaning Jackson. Smith then asks for Bravo Company to be sent forward to reinforce, at which point Townsend says he'll ask. Keep in mind that Townsend is the battalion commander. Both Delta and Bravo are his companies. No doubt he has Jackson staring over his shoulder, but any battalion commander worth his rank would make the call to send Bravo to extract Delta and then deal with the Brigadier, not meekly asking permission to fight his battalion as he should. But eventually, Harry at least gets advice that an airstrike is available and to send the coordinates. By this stage, the airstrike is too late to relieve any of the pressure on 11 platoon. Ammunition is just about gone. Buick only has a handful of men still able to fire a weapon. He now makes a call which no commander on any battlefield would ever want to make. In case you missed it, Buick said, target artillery on my location. Smith asks for a situation report where Buick advises that he only has one subunit at his call sign, which is basically saying he's only got a handful of blokes left. He then reiterates that he's almost out of ammunition and he must withdraw, and again states, target artillery on my location. The next voice that comes on is that of Murray Stanley, the forward observer. He's heard what Buick has asked for but feels that he needs to hear it again, so says, say again. Now put yourself in Stanley's boots here. He's the bloke that tells the artillery where to drop the shells. So in this instance, he's the one that has to call in the coordinates to drop artillery on his own troops, blokes who he knows and has probably shared a beer or three with. 
This artillery strike is likely to kill some, if not all of them, and he's the one who has to call it in. No wonder he's asked Bob Buick to say again. And Buick makes it easy for him. He repeats the request and lays it all out for him with the line, It's simple. If you don't, we'll all be dead in 10 minutes. So I'll play that section again, now that I've filled in the bits that may not have been particularly clear, and because I want you to have another listen to Bob Buick's voice when he tells Stanley they'll all be dead in 10 minutes. Given the enormity of the situation, he seems quite calm and matter-of-fact. No grand theatrics, just a simple statement. And so Stanley advises that he would walk the artillery in another 25 metres. Before the artillery is fired, 11 platoons saw the Vietnamese massing for another charge. It would be a race as to who gets to 11 platoon first, the Vietnamese or the artillery. Three short notes from a bugle signified the order to the charge, and just as the troops rose from their positions of relative safety, the first salvo of artillery fell among them. Bob Buick later stated that 40 Viet Cong troops simply disappeared, shredded within seconds. Moments later, another 36 shells fell along the enemy lines, decimating the attack. The forward momentum of the shells and the 11 platoon's position behind a small rise sheltered the Australians from the worst of the shrapnel. A massive gap formed in the Vietnamese lines, but to the Australians' horror, fresh troops appeared in the gap and charged over the remains of their comrades. It was obvious that even the artillery wasn't going to stop these men. Eglinton had run out of ammunition on the M60. No relief was coming. Their only hope was to make a dash for it. Buick shouted, go, 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 and those who could sprang up and ran. Vic Grice was shot and killed almost instantly, while another two were wounded. Private John Hesselwood described the moment as he began his run. As we rose, the fire built up like a drum roll with traces going over the top. End quote. Magnuson stopped to try and help Barry Miller, but Miller told him, leave me, leave me, come back later. The platoon sprinted 80 to 120 metres through the rain, rubber trees and bullets before they stopped to regroup. Ahead of them, Buick saw a cloud of yellow smoke and he knew that must have been thrown by an Australian unit, and so they ran towards the smoke. As they ran, they called out their names so as to assure the other men that they were indeed Australians, and soon they were in the company of Sabin and his 12th platoon. Paddy Todd, covered in mud and foliage and God knows what else, crawled in and noticed some 12 platoon lads lining him up with their rifles. He called out, You silly bastards, don't shoot, don't shoot. Buddy Leah helped drag Paddy the last few metres. Sabin was at last able to send a bit of good news to Harry Smith. But of course, the rescue of 11 platoon didn't end the battle. But as 10, 11 and 12 platoons fell back to headquarters, a brief break in the fighting occurred while the Vietnamese reset for the next phase. 
From their perspective, instead of trying to deal with three widely dispersed platoons, their enemy was now all concentrated into one perimeter. All they had to do was get around them and push hard. At this point, it's probably worth considering what's happening at First Task Force Base at Nui Dat. Well, there may have been the mother of all battles going on just a few kilometres away, but at headquarters, it was time for the daily 5 o'clock conference. About 35 officers rolled up, including Townsend, whose Delta Company was currently involved in the less important task of fighting for their lives. Fortunately, Major Dick Hannigan cancelled the meeting pretty much straight away, given the fact that more serious things were happening. Most of those officers popped next door to the operations tent where this battle was being coordinated, or more accurately, not coordinated in any meaningful way. Many of those officers could tell that Brigadier Jackson was not handling the pressure particularly well. Hannigan and Lieutenant Colonel Cubis took over some of Jackson's more pressing tasks, but one thing they couldn't do was issue orders for the relief of Delta Company. Only Jackson had that authority. So why was Jackson in such a state? It's worth considering. To me, and this is just my personal interpretation, he gives the impression of a man who knows he is stuffed up royally, knows that something has to be done to rectify it, but is paralysed because, well, what if he stuffs up again and loses the whole task force instead of just one company? Remember, he's one of the few who knows of that intel report showing that a regimental radio was making its way towards him. He also believes this 274th Main Force Viet Cong Regiment is somewhere to his north waiting to attack the task force base. 5RAR is out in the bush somewhere and unavailable to defend the base should it be attacked. In his own mind, Jackson sees his armoured personnel carriers as the only available defence unit on hand. But these are also the very troops that can pull Delta Company out of the shit. Rather than making a decision, Jackson does the worst thing he could possibly do. He makes no decision at all. The assembled officers were left scratching their heads wondering why Delta Company was being hung out to dry, not the least of who was Lieutenant Adrian Roberts, who commanded the troop of carriers designated to deliver the relief forces. His drivers and crews were all geared up and ready to go, but instead they were twiddling their thumbs. Finally, Townsend was able to convince Jackson that the risk of losing Delta Company was much more likely than losing the entire task force, and at 5.30 Jackson finally gave the order for Roberts to get his carriers moving. That was great, but the infantry they were supposed to be transporting were at that stage taking it easy after returning from a long patrol. They were having beers and a barbecue, so when they received the order to gear up and get on the carriers, they did so in some disarray. The only assistance Delta had received during the entire debacle was from the ever-reliable artillery. Maury Stanley kept calling in the coordinates and the gunners kept dropping the shells with impressive accuracy. But with Australian troops pulling back from all over the battlefield, Stanley had to call a temporary halt to the shelling. Then, with all of his remaining troops now in a single perimeter, Major Smith gives another situation report, and things aren't good. So again, in case you missed that, I'll quote it for you, because this perfectly sums up the situation. Enemy still attacking my call sign in strength from three sides. Could be reorganising to attack in force. Two platoons at 75% effective, one platoon almost completely destroyed. I am organised for all-round defence. If APCs aren't here soon, don't bother. End quote. He did say something else in that last sentence, but I couldn't decipher it. 
but the guts of the message is there. 10 and 12 platoons are only at 75%. 11 platoon is more or less destroyed and they're set up in a defensive perimeter. But if they don't get reinforcements soon, there'll be no point sending them as Delta Company will no longer exist. And just to add to the problems, the ammunition situation is near on critical. The only way to get ammo to the troops was by helicopter, but once again, senior officers who are more concerned about their own careers held things up. You see, there was a monsoonal downpour happening and there was also the Vietnamese people who were making the whole drop zone a bit dangerous. The RAAF's group captain, Raw, refused to allow his pilots to undertake the flight until the drop zone was, quote, relatively secure. He may even have to get permission from Canberra before he could commit his aircraft. There were a few heated words between Jackson and Raw, but Raw stood firm. Jackson figured that his only option was to ask the Americans, and they said they could come to the party in about 20 minutes. That would be too late to be of any use to Delta. Fortunately, even though Raw wouldn't budge, there were some Australian pilots on hand who thought Raw and his corrected procedure could fornicate to another location. Flight Lieutenant Frank Riley and Flight Lieutenant Bruce Lane said, bugger it, they'll go on their own if necessary. And so they did. Riley and his co-pilot, Flight Lieutenant Bob Grandin, boarded their helicopter while Lane and his co-pilot, Flight Lieutenant Cliff Dolly, boarded the other. Major Owen O'Brien and 6 RER's Regimental Sergeant Major, Warrant Officer George Chin, volunteered to throw the ammunition down to the troops. RSM Chin didn't so much volunteer for the job, so much as demand to go and God help anyone who got in his way. Grandin wasn't so keen. He later said, It was insanity. I felt petrified. I tried to talk Riley out of it. Frank said, Shut up. Stop giving me the shits. You can hardly blame Grandin for his reluctance. It was almost a suicide mission. Finally, at about 6pm, with 10 to 15 boxes of ammunition between them, the choppers took off into the pouring rain, flying with only their anti-collision lights on. The artillery was ceased to fire for only 5 minutes to allow the choppers to get in, drop their load and get out again. Upon approaching the battle area, Grandin saw orange smoke. It was a common tactic of the Vietnamese to throw a smoke grenade in order to confuse the enemy pilots. In this case, the orange smoke, which Grander reported seeing, had been thrown by the Vietnamese. He was quickly advised that that wasn't correct, and when red smoke was confirmed, the chopper flew in to treetop level. The rain and wind made it a precarious manoeuvre, not to mention the Vietnamese fire. But somehow, both crews managed to drop their loads directly on target and got away to fly another day. There were quite a few examples of incredible courage during the Battle of Long Tan, but the actions of those two air crews was right up there with the best of them. Down on the ground, Jack Kirby, who the boxers had nearly landed on, grabbed the boxers and charged around the plantation like a man possessed, handing out ammunition to any man who could still fire a rifle. The men wasted no time in filling their magazines and recommencing firing. And then finally, finally, the carriers were on their way. But even then, there was another stuff up. The carriers couldn't find the exit from Nui Dat. Not so long ago, the exit had been relocated and was concealed by a complex barbed wire arrangement. But no one had told Roberts about this. They had to wait until a guide from one field squadron engineers arrived to show them the way through. Everything was now set for the climactic scenes of this drama. Harry Smith and remnants of Delta Company were formed into a defensive perimeter. Many of those still fighting were carrying at least one wound. 
the Vietnamese forces were gathering for the final effort to destroy these Australians, and Delta Company's only hope, carriers full of Alpha Company troops, were speeding to the area. And then the bugles sounded. According to Bill Ackle, you saw them lining up, you heard the awful sound. They were spread out in an extended line in the pouring rain. You could see these black figures coming your way. Your mind is going 100 miles an hour. I thought, this is my last moment on earth. End quote. At a steady jog, the Vietnamese troops came on in their hundreds. With their freshly delivered ammunition, the Australians opened up and Maurice Stanley called in the artillery. The fire devastated the front line and the second died behind the bodies for cover before leaping up and charging over their dead comrades. They were coming forward all the time over the piles of dead, recalled one soldier. Jack Kirby ran around the perimeter, screaming encouragement to his men, and at one point he came across a wounded man. He scooped him up without breaking stride and delivered him back to the medic. The enemy sometimes came so close they could nearly touch them. Ackle shot one enemy soldier only three metres away, and still the Vietnamese kept coming. At 6.20pm, Smith ordered Stanley to get the artillery to drop within 50 metres of the perimeter. The artillery officer denied the request, saying it was too dangerous. I'm not sure how that could be more dangerous than hundreds of screaming Vietnamese troops, but it was about this point that Smith lost his patience with the gunners. So, with the words, fire the bloody guns where we want or you'll lose the lot of us, Smith convinced the gunners to do as he wanted. The Vietnamese troops ran straight into the barrage. When the first line was destroyed, the second ran forward over them. Saban later recalled, It looked as if the dead were coming to life. It created a rolling wave effect which you just couldn't stop. But the artillery did stop them eventually. According to the D-445 history, we could not advance even a step to eliminate the remainder of the Australian force as a result of the artillery rain. With a brief respite, Smith ordered his men to shrink their perimeter by another 25 metres. Smith was preparing his men for their last stand. But at least the carriers were on their way. Or were they? No, just after leaving Nui Dat, Roberts was ordered to send two of his carriers back to pick up Lieutenant Colonel Townsend. Yep, you heard that right. With one of his companies fighting for its life, Townsend ordered two of the carriers heading to their assistance to turn around and pick him up, just so he could join them. Why? Who really knows? The other carriers pushed on, but were further delayed by the conditions. Robert had, quite rightly, chosen the shortest approach route, but the pouring rain had turned the bullock track into a slick trail leading down to a swollen creek. One by one the carriers had to make their way down to the creek and float across. One stayed behind to guard the crossing, while the remaining seven, out of the ten which had set out, pushed on towards the sound of battle. Incredibly, they were ordered to sit and wait, until Townsend caught up with them. Thankfully they ignored that order and pushed forward through the jungle in line abreast. And then, the easternmost vehicle saw black figures rushing through the trees. The enemy had somehow not noticed the hulking carriers. They had been travelling in the near dark with lights off, and the rain and noise of the nearby battle had covered the sounds of their engines. The order was given to open fire, and Lieutenant Dinham of Alpha Company ordered the crew commander to lower the rear hatch so his men could disembark and attack. This duly happened, and after a brief six-minute encounter, the enemy movement was broken. 
They had been in the process of working around behind Delta Company, completing the ring around them. But Denham's quick thinking and rapid attack had broken up the attempt. Eight bodies were later found, with blood trails suggesting maybe another 40 wounded. With all troops back on board, the carriers moved forward again, until they encountered an enemy anti-tank team. The machine gunners soon took care of them, but Roberts was concerned that further teams could be up ahead. Carriers are great for transporting troops and withstanding rifle and machine gun fire, but up against anti-tank weaponry, they were no hope. Captain Charles Mollison, commander of Alpha Company, was frustrated by this delay and urged Roberts to continue. Roberts advised Mollison where he could go and how to get there. Some accounts say that Mollison then pulled a pistol on Roberts, but Roberts dismissed that account as laughable. While they were having their difference of opinion, an enemy machine gunner opened up and Corporal Peter Clements was hit in the stomach. He fell back into his carrier, which ran forward and crushed the machine gunner. Roberts ordered the carrier to take Clements back to Dad, an order which infuriated Mollison as they were now down to only six carriers. Clements died nine days later. Finally, they got on the move again and at last reached the battlefield. They charged into the enemy like a herd of stampeding cattle, machine guns blazing and running over anyone too slow to get out of the way. The Vietnamese directed intense fire at the carriers, but they kept pushing on 500 metres into the plantation. This finally broke the resolve of the Vietnamese. D-445 officer Nguyen Duc Thu said later, We saw the tanks coming and we knew that we did not have the weapons to fight them. At about 7pm, the firing stopped, just about the same time as the rain ceased falling. End quote. Ten minutes later, the carriers reached Delta Company and the Battle of Long Tan was over. Alpha Company fanned out to establish a new perimeter. The carriers, now at their full complement of ten, now that Townsend had arrived, formed a square around Delta Company. With their top hatches open and interior lights on, they marked the area for the dust-off crews to get the wounded men out. Townsend sent a sit-rep to Nui Dat. Some men reported that Jackson hung his head in his hands in despair. It felt like a total disaster, and he knew it would likely mean the end of his career. He had been tested, and had come up short. Smith and Townsend spent that night in a carrier, debriefing and arguing, as Paul Ham puts it. I would have liked to have been a mosquito on the wall of that carrier. I'm sure Harry Smith didn't hold back. Those Delta Company men who were still functional also spent the night in the field, occasionally crawling out in the direction of somebody moaning. The next morning, much to the consternation of his men, Harry Smith refused to let another company go into the battle zone to collect the dead. He wanted his men to see what they had achieved. After everything they had copped the previous afternoon, the battlefield was still theirs, and there were dead Delta Company men among those trees, and Harry wasn't leaving until they were out. Delta led the carriers into the rubber trees, which were now leaking their white sap from where the bullets and shrapnel had torn gouges in the trees. Three and a half thousand shells had burst around the area and soon the troops began to see the evidence of what those shells had done. Occasionally there would be a mostly intact body in black clothing but for the most part it was a hell of limbs, heads, entrails scattered all over on the ground and even in the trees. At this site Corporal Laurie Drinkwater said I more or less turned off. I didn't have any feeling at all. It may sound callous to not have any feeling at all but what else could he do? If he allowed himself to feel anything in amongst that carnal house, he probably would have lost his mind. They soon came across the Australian dead, Gordon Sharp laying face down with his arm seemingly reaching for a nearby AK-47. Vic Grice, a radio operator, had died sitting up with his hand still holding the send button 
on the radio handset, and many others who, 24 hours earlier, had been fit, healthy young men looking forward to a rock and roll concert. Fortunately, the Australian dead had been spared the attention of the artillery shells, and so were well preserved and recognisable. Then two miracles occurred. While searching the area, they came across Barry Meller, the man Bob Buick said had been shot through the mouth without flinching. Well, here he was, propped up against a tree with a bullet hole in his cheek and another in his leg. Upon seeing his mates, he said, What took you so long? And just over there, that's Jim Richmond, lying face down in the mud with two bullet wounds in the chest, but still alive. Later, Richmond recalled, I was hoping the artillery wouldn't get me. I was worried about my mother, and I kept thinking if I died, she would be up shit creek. So I prayed a lot and made a lot of promises, but I'm afraid I never really kept any of them. It was the longest night I've ever known. End quote. There was a report that the Australians routinely killed the Vietnamese wounded. Bob Buick admitted to killing one who had half his head missing. In Buick's words, I killed him out of pity for the poor bastard. I hope someone would have done the same for me if the roles were reversed. David Harwood killed another wounded soldier who was in agony and with no chance of survival. But apparently, this was enough for a journalist, Ian Mackay, to report routine killing of wounded enemy. Allowing journalists and other battlefield tourists such as base soldiers and curious commanders was just another stupid decision. When a journo started asking Bob Buick stupid questions, he stuck his rifle into the reporter's stomach and said, quote, If you don't fuck off and leave me alone, I'll kill you. Jack Kirby took the reporter and hung him by his collar on a rubber tree. But it wasn't only the civvies that got on the wrong side of Bob. A major who had flown in for a squiz made some insensitive remarks within earshot of the sergeant. Within a few seconds, the major was flat in his ass after being punched by Buick. In hindsight, it probably was the wrong call to take Delta back into the plantation. Buick was obviously highly strung after being on the receiving end of the absolute worst of yesterday's fighting. It took three days to bury all the dead Vietnamese, and the longer it took, the more grim the conditions of the remains became. In an interview for the ABC series Australians at War, Buick stated that the smell got into everything. As a smoker at the time, whenever he lifted a cigarette to his mouth, he'd smell death. The Australian wounded were flown to the 36th US Evacuation Hospital in the care of US and Australian doctors. The dead were flown home and buried with full military honours. In all, 17 Australians lost their lives, and one later died of his wounds. 21 were wounded. It is estimated that the Vietnamese lost 245 dead and 350 wounded, according to the official history sent to Canberra at the time. But in later operations, a document was captured which put the Vietnamese numbers at a staggering 878 killed or missing and 1,500 wounded. The battle made headlines around the world, particularly in the United States. Delta Company was awarded the United States Presidential Unit Citation, one of only a handful of non-American units to do so. The South Vietnamese government wanted to bestow South Vietnamese awards on the Australian troops, but this was refused by the pen pushers back in Canberra. Eventually, they were given dolls. It took 38 years for the Australian government to finally relent and allow the members of Delta Company to receive the proper medals. Harry Smith was asked by Townsend to submit a recommendation for awards for individuals within Delta Company. He recommended military crosses for Sabin and Kendall, a mention in dispatches for Sharp, and military medals for Bob Buick, Bill Moore and Ackle. In the end, they were all downgraded to lesser awards. 42 years later, the government finally recognised Delta Company's efforts at Long Tan, but by that time, many of them had shuffled off this mortal coil, feeling forgotten and let down by their own government. And that is the Battle of Long Tan. What can we take away from this? I'd like to try and end things on a positive. So, to start with, let's look at the failures. 
Ultimately, responsibility for the conduct of the battles rests with Brigadier Jackson. He knew, or at least should have known, that a large Vietnamese force was heading his way. Yet, he took no real action to prepare for it. In fact, he was so unprepared that he permitted a rock and roll show to continue the day after a mortar attack. Then, when it became apparent that Delta was facing a significant force, he still failed to act. I'm not sure what his actions could have been, but I'd say it would at least boil down to get Delta out of there or reinforce ASAP. He did neither, and as a result he left 108 Australians to face an enemy force of more than 10 times their own number. Then, having realised his mistake, he froze. Again, he did nothing. Lieutenant Colonel Townsend also didn't acquit himself well. He was the battalion commander, and control of the companies within that battalion were his responsibilities. At the very least, he should have been more forceful in insisting that Bravo Company be sent forward, and if it was refused, send them anyway. I can't imagine Harry Smith being so reluctant if he was in Townsend's place. But in his defence, Jackson did outrank him, and the military is quite sensitive about such things. And then to pull back two carriers from the relief force just so he could get a lift to the battle? Just defies belief. Flight Officer Raw? Well, he obviously wanted things done by the book. The choppers were his responsibility, and he would be the one who would have to answer for their loss. But that is something he should have been willing to face, because the far greater loss would be a company of troops without ammunition a lack of intestinal fortitude and willingness to defend his actions to his superiors. So that's about it for the failures. On the positive side, the two helicopter crews who disobeyed their own commander and flew ammunition in the middle of a blazing firefight? There aren't words in the English language to do justice to the courage of those men, even though some didn't really want to be there. They were there, and that's what matters. Without them, Delta Company would have been lost long before the carriers arrived. The artillery, what an amazing job they did. Yes, there were a couple of occasions when they probably should have just done what the blokes on the pointy end wanted, but by and large, their shooting throughout the engagement was absolutely spot on. And they were tireless. The shell of your standard 75mm howitzer weighs about 8 kilos, and these blokes were feeding them into the guns solidly for 3 hours. Damn fine effort. The Vietnamese troops. We shouldn't forget the Vietnamese troops when discussing this fight. They may have been the enemy, but the courage they showed in carrying out their orders has to be acknowledged. Time and time again, they witnessed their comrades being blown apart by the artillery and fire from Delta Company, and yet they kept on coming. Sure, they were all pumped up with fervour for the communist cause, but at that point where you're about to throw your body into an artillery barrage, that fervour will only do so much to fortify you. The rest is pure grit, determination and courage. Harry Smith is no doubt the hero of this story. Heavily outnumbered, surrounded and receiving bugger all support from his own commanders, he kept Delta Company fighting and intact. He made the right decisions and remained calm in conditions which would try even the hardiest of men. He trusted his subordinate leaders to do their jobs and stepped in only when he had to, as when he had to take the radio from Maurice Stanley to tell the artillery to drop shells where he wanted them. Without doubt, the right man in the right place at the right time. And finally, of course, Delta Company. All the command ability in the world would be useless if the troops themselves couldn't handle the situation. Despite the absolute hammering they received, not a single man lost himself. No one attempted to get up and run away. No one refused an order. Many acted on their own initiative to avert disaster. Bill Ackle running the radio to 10 platoon, for example. With all the odds stacked against them, the men of Delta Company dug in and fought it out to the last and managed to snatch victory from an almost impossible situation. Perhaps the greatest legacy of the Battle of Long Tan was that, for the remainder of the war, North Vietnamese troops were forbidden from ever launching a direct attack against Nui Dat. 
within range of accurate artillery and with resolute troops who would prefer to drop artillery dangerously close to themselves rather than retreat, it was deemed too risky and not worth the cost. Far better to try to just contain this Australian force and focus on taking the Americans instead. No doubt many Australian lives were saved by those few men of Delta Company who took on ten times of their number and walked away victors. Hope you enjoyed that episode. If so, feel free to leave a comment on the website at australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com or on Instagram under AMH Podcast or on Facebook. Also, apparently leaving a review on iTunes helps more people to find the podcast, so it would be very much appreciated if you can head over to iTunes and leave a review and a comment so that more people can learn about the amazing history of Australia at Arms. And remember, if there's any aspect of our military history which you would like to hear about, drop me a line at amhp.media at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Australian Military History Podcast. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.